This message is brought to you by Moira Pentecostal Church. We hope that it will encourage, challenge, and inspire you in your walk with God. Mark chapter 8. I just want to read two verses towards the end of Mark chapter 8. Verse 36 and 37, words of Jesus. For what shall it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? What shall it profit a man if he gain the whole world and lose his own soul? What shall a man give in exchange for his soul? Almost without exception in our prayer meetings on Thursday night, we pray for the salvation of our unsaved loved ones. And last Thursday night uh, was no different in that respect. Other than, I think perhaps maybe when it was maybe Martin was praying, something he said that immediately uh, registered in my heart and I felt immediately exercised and uh, quickened to share these few thoughts with you tonight. All of us have unsaved loved ones, without exception. That may be mother or father, brother or sister, husband or wife, grandfather, grandmother. And beyond that, we have aunts, uncles, and cousins. Within those two circles, our families, our extended families, there are precious souls tonight who are lost, eternally lost. And many of them don't know that they are lost. And they are in a very serious condition. Their eternal souls are at stake. A Christless eternity is almost too awful to contemplate, but we have to think about it for the sake of our loved ones. Jesus said, what shall a man profit if he gain the whole world and he lose his own soul? What shall he give in exchange for his soul? When it comes to matters of the soul, Jesus implies that every man, every single one of us has the chance to barter or trade, or exchange, or experience profit and loss. All of us. You and I possess something that's of infinite worth, our soul. See, it's Spurgeon, the great preacher, said, the soul is worth more than 10,000 worlds. And it truly is. We can lose it. We can squander its incredible resources. We can waste its riches no man has actually ever owned the whole world. Some has come close to it. Alexander the Great, when he was just 20 years old, he ascended the throne. By the time he was 30, he was the most powerful man the world had ever seen. He had the most powerful army the world had ever seen. He had conquered Persia, Babylon, Egypt, and a host of other nations. 
But at the age of 32, he died a broken man, weeping that he had no more worlds to conquer. He had everything, and he had nothing. And he died a drunkard. Charles the Great, King of the Franks, became emperor of the Western branch of Christianity, Western Europe. He built palaces and churches. He promoted Christianity all throughout his whole empire, as well as the arts, manufacturing, agriculture, commerce, and so forth. And he gave instructions that at his death, he wanted to be seated on a throne like a ruling monarch with a crown upon his head and a sword by his side. And with the Bible open at the Gospels on his lap. 180 years later, they opened his tomb. They found his skeleton with his scepter on his head, with his sword by his side, with the Bible open at his lap, and his bony skeletal finger pointing at that scripture we just read. What shall it profit a man if he gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Jesus tells us that the soul is of infinite worth. Let me ask you a question. Would you sell any of your body parts? There's people in Africa and China and India today who are selling body parts. They're so desperate, they're so poor, that they see it's the only way they have to get any kind of money. Would you sell your arm for a million pounds? Would you sell your two eyes for two million pounds? I don't think so. But that's just the perishable part. That's just the part that the soul lives in. But your soul is of infinite value and worth to God. It's eternal. It will live throughout the countless ages Without the soul, the body will simply return to dust from whence it came, but the soul will live forever and ever and ever and ever. World without end. Jesus tells us that the soul can be lost. It can never die, but it can be lost. It will live forever, but it can be lost. It will never cease to be but it can be lost, lost forever, eternally. What a terrible, frightening prospect to be lost. On March the 8th, Malaysian Airlines Flight 370 with 239 souls on board suddenly lost contact, all contact. Four months later, nobody knows where it is. It's lost. With every single person on board. All kinds of theories has been put forth, but the fact is, nobody knows how or why. The best guess is that it's at the bottom of the Indian Ocean. And all those relatives of every person on board are heartbroken, devastated, angry, confused. We saw on our television screens how they came to Malaysia 
and how they were angry at the government for not doing enough, and yet it was the biggest search in history for an airplane, with many nations taking part, and still after four months they hadn't found one single piece of wreckage, not a trace, lost, gone. I wonder how many people on board, I wonder how many of their souls are eternally lost. Someday they may find wreckage. Someday they may find it at the bottom of the ocean. Someday they may be able to recover parts of it. But for those on board, it's too late, isn't it? What does Christ mean by lost? There comes a point in every man or woman's life when, usually at death, when somebody is irretrievably, irredeemably lost. They've crossed the Rubicon. And no prayer can save them. No sermon can convict them. No mother's prayer can avail. No intercession can prevail. It's too late. Lost. And somehow as believers, because we're saved and we've been on the road, maybe some of us for many, many years, we lose the impact of that one word, lost. This is why God sent His Son to die, so that men and women would not be lost. But they are lost. Physical death, of course, is when the soul is separated from the body. And many of us have been there when that has happened, and you know it has happened. When the spirit soul leaves the body, there's that moment when you can see it happening. Spiritual death is when the soul, the spirit, is separated from God. Eternal death, or the second death as the Bible calls it, is when spirit, soul, and body are separated from God forever. Revelation chapter 20 speaks of this. Verse 11 of Revelation 20. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it and from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God and the books were opened and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up its dead who were in it. The death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. Anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Those are sobering, frightening words, are they not? And yet here they are in our New Testament. Here they are written down for us. Now Jesus tells us that right now, in a sense, and I need to qualify, in a sense, right now, we own our own soul. In a sense. Of course, in the ultimate way, God owns all souls. He says, all souls are mine. 
But this side of eternity, in a sense, we are the possessors of our own soul. And we have choices that we can make. Again, we can barter, we can trade, we can sell, we can lose our souls. In Hebrews chapter 12, it talks about Esau, who sold his birthright for a mess of pottage, for a bowl of lentil soup. He sold his birthright. And the birthright was not just all that he would inherit as the older eldest son, which would be tremendous. But there was a spiritual aspect to the birthright. Whoever had the birthright was to be the one who would lead that home and that family spiritually as well as every other way. And he sold that. And it says he afterwards he sought for it, even with tears. But it was too late. He couldn't get it back. And so all of us, including our families, have a high responsibility what we do with our souls this side of eternity. Because the other side of it is too late, isn't it? Not too long ago, just some time ago, there was a great survey done in America with over 3,000 evangelical believers and people of faith. And what they discovered was startling. 83% of evangelical Protestants agreed that people, good people, of other religions will go to heaven. Another finding is that 30% of those affiliated with the religion says that belief determines eternal life. Only 30%. 29% that eternal life depends on one's actions. And 10% said it's a combination of both. So what does that survey tell us? It tells us that the gospel has been so weakened and watered down that people just believe, basically, that you'll get in if you're good enough. You say, well, that's America. I'm not too sure that it wouldn't be any different here, actually. It'll be a little bit better, but the way things are going, not much. Christ being exclusive, his salvation being exclusive, is as controversial as ever. Jesus as the way, the truth, and the life in a postmodern world is not acceptable. How long will it be before we will be, because of law, will be made not to be able to say that Jesus is the only way to salvation? How long will that be? Maybe not very long. Because that is not very tolerant, it's not very pluralistic. In a culture and an age when people believe that there are many ways to heaven, for us to stand up and say, Jesus said, He is the only way. He's the only life. He is the truth. How long will it be before we're not allowed to say that legally? Maybe not too long, actually. It's all being challenged. Of course, the idea that it's not really new, this idea, because over the years, sadly, many evangelicals 
have come to believe in universalism, which basically at its root means that everybody at some point, no matter what they believe, if anything at all, will all get saved at some point. They'll all be in heaven anyway because God's so good and He's so gracious. You're not condemn anybody to hell. Everybody will go to heaven. You would not believe how many preachers are preaching that today. It's supposed to be believers too. So the idea that faith alone and Christ alone for salvation is under attack, and I suppose really not surprisingly, because sadly most Christians are doctrinally and theologically ignorant of many aspects of what they believe about Christ. But there's another explanation as why many people believe that good people will go to heaven. And this is getting us back to our loved ones. Because I'm sure for the most part, most of us love our loved ones. And for the most part, most of us feel that they're good folks. And they're decent. And they're nice. And they're kind. And they're loving. And they're generous. (laughs) All of those good things. Now, there are probably some exceptions within your family. You could say, ha, ha, but David, you, you don't know my family. But generally speaking, I'm saying. And so there's a thinking that goes with this that God would not condemn a, quote-unquote, a good person to a lost eternity. Why do we think that? Because we wouldn't do that. That's the thinking. Well, you see, you don't know my wee granny and my wee granda because they're just the salt of the earth. And I mean, they're just such a precious couple. And you don't know my mom and dad. I mean, they're just the best moment that anybody could ever have. But let me ask you the question. Do they know Christ? Are they saved? Do they trust Christ as the only way to heaven? Because if not, the brittle fact is they're lost. They are lost. Unless they come to Christ, they will be eternally lost. Now, we don't like to think about that. We don't mind thinking about other people's families, but not our family. Not our loved ones. But this is a reality. Christ says, I haven't come to bring peace. I've come to bring a sword. Sometimes that sword comes into the family. And sometimes we have to divide and make choices. But what that really shows is that we are placing God's sense of justice alongside ours. What we're really saying, in fact, is that our sense of justice is equal to God's or even greater than God's. I wouldn't condemn that person, so I don't think God would either. Really? So what we're saying is, well, I know as much as God knows, (laughs) and my sense of justice is as good as God's, so if I wouldn't do it, I don't think God would do it either. But the truth is that God's Justice is infinitely higher than our justice. In fact, his love for our loved ones is infinitely greater than our love for our loved ones. He loved our loved ones so much that he gave his only son to die for them. That's how much he loves them. So away with this nonsense about our sense of justice and fairness and all this is different than God's. No, no. God knows what he's doing. God knows the price that has been paid for people to be coming to Christ. And so, no matter how good and how loving and how kind and how generous and how sweet our loved ones may be, 
At the end of it, if they don't know Christ, they are going to a lost eternity. Forever. That is the brittle, stark reality. And so if they die in their sins, they're lost. You say, well, what about just before they die? What if they repent and they say, God, forgive me? Well, the blood of Jesus Christ is still as powerful today as it was 2,000 years ago. And at that very moment, he can save them, and they would be as saved as much at that moment as they would ever be in their lives, because that's all it takes, a repentant heart and a prayer for forgiveness. And Christ can save. But what if my relative are not saved in the sense that we talk about what we believe the Bible says, but they're religious. Well, you see, the problem is Christianity is exclusive. It knows only one way. It knows only one Savior, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. So no matter how devout they may be in what they believe about all their religions, it's not going to take them to heaven because there's only one way. Now, the trouble with that is it sounds very narrow, doesn't it? Intolerant. And that's what Christians are being accused of today. You lot are too narrow. You're too intolerant. You believe you're the only ones with the truth. No, we believe this is the truth. We just happen we found it. Thank God. But this is the truth. And Jesus is the way. And there is no other way. So being devout doesn't come into it. If that's the case, then any way will get you to heaven as long as you believe it, are sincere about it. But sincerity is not necessarily truth. The captain of the Titanic was very sincere when he thought, when he had set his course, that he would get to New York. There's no question about it. He was absolutely sincere about that, but he didn't get, did he? He didn't get. Sounds very narrow. Well, actually, it is very narrow. Jesus said in Matthew 7, Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there be many that go in by it. But because narrow is the gate, and difficult is the way which leads to life, and few there are who find it. So you see, it is a narrow way. And the majority, sadly, will not find the narrow way. They will not walk the narrow way. They will walk the broad way. You know, this troubles me because, you know, often we think about and we hope for a great end-time harvest before Christ comes back. But the reality is the whole world will not be one to Jesus before he comes back. It's still going to be a narrow way a narrow gate that we've got to go through. Well, what about tolerance? Well, being tolerant doesn't mean just accepting everything or not being able to discuss or debate or disagree with others. It just means that we've got to do it in a kind way, in a courteous way. We've got to do it with humility, with grace, remembering that the Holy Spirit opened our blind eyes to the truth. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 6 
he talked to the Corinthians and he said, listen, speaking about before they got saved, some of you, he says, and he starts to say what they were, fornicators, idolaters, and all the rest of it. But he says, such were some of you, but now you're washed, now you're clean. That's what you wear, this is what you are. So remember what you wear. Remember what God brought you from. And so in our arguments, or in our debates, in our discussions, even though we have the truth, and even though we can come to the Word of God as the truth, yet we have got to remember what we used to be, and how we used to think, and how we used to act. Paul spoke in Galatians 5 about the offense of the cross. And this really drives a stake into the heart of this belief that our goodness and our decency, that our acts of kindness, our integrity, our generosity, that that will be enough. It will never be enough and couldn't be enough. It cannot save us. The cross reminds us there's absolutely nothing that we can do to save ourselves. Therefore, there's nothing our loved ones can do to save themselves. We're simply not good enough. We're not decent enough. We'll never be righteous enough. Never, ever could be in the eyes of God. He says, all your righteousness are filthy rags in my sight. And that's what drives us to Christ because he is the righteous ones. James says, for whoever keeps the whole law and yet offends and just one point, he is guilty of all of it. Doesn't seem fair, does it? But that's because God's righteousness is such a high standard. It's a perfect standard and we could never actually live up to that. That's why we need Christ, who is the only one who ever could live up to that. We need to be in Him. We need His righteousness to cover us. Jesus said to His disciples, All of you shall be offended because of me this night. Do you ever find, if you're witnessing to your loved ones or you're talking to them, do you ever find them getting offended? Hmm? Many people, when you go to witness to them or talk to them, they get very defensive, don't they? And we were probably the same. It offends us. The idea that somebody could possibly think that we are lost, that we're not good enough, that when we stand before God, He's going to weigh us and He's going to say, I'm sorry, you're just not good enough. Because that's what most people think. They most think, well, I'm good enough. I'm not perfect, but I'm good enough. I'll get in. Even if I get in with the skin of my teeth, I'll still get in because I'm not too bad. And whenever we start to talk about us being sinners and we were born in sin and we're stuck with it until we repent and turn to Christ, they get offended. They get offended. You see, in this world that we live in, most people live their lives by preference rather than by principle. They do what they prefer to do. They live how they prefer to live, not by what principle teaches and how principle teaches us to live. So it's easy to see why they reject Christ and his cross because to them, it's just a preference, not a principle. Say, so what do you mean? Well, they may say things like, well, that's okay for you, but it's not for me. In other words, well, that's your preference, but it's not mine. I prefer the way I am. But that's your preference, and that's okay. You go ahead with that, but don't put that in me. That's not my preference. 
But we're not talking about preference, we're talking about principle. We're talking about truth. So what about our loved ones tonight? What can we do about our loved ones? You say, David, I've done everything I know to do. I've talked to them. I've shared with them. I've prayed for them. I've done just about everything. I've invited them to church. I've done everything. What are we going to do? We're going to keep at it. We're going to keep doing it. When I was, I don't know, Sally, we met when we were 15. So shortly after that, I took you home to meet the parents. My mother and two sisters were born again believers since ever I can remember. I wasn't. So I told them that it was bringing Sally home to meet them for the first time. And here was the orders I gave them. No preaching at her. No giving her tracts. No singing choruses. None of that stuff. None of that religious stuff. Don't want it. Don't you dare do anything like that to, that, to her now. <laughs> I might as well have talked to that podium. <laughs> They did everything I said not to do. <laughs> and she didn't mind. I minded, but she didn't mind. And actually, she came to Christ before I did. So what are we going to do? Now, I know there comes a point when you have shared and talked and witnessed and done all of that. There comes a point where you back off. I understand that. But then there comes a point where you go again. You maybe find another way. Or you maybe pray very much that somehow God will open their eyes either to what you're saying or what somebody else is saying. You'd be surprised how many times if you pray that God will get somebody in their workplace to cross their path or in their school or whatever beyond you. But it's because you're praying, because of your concern, because of your heart towards them. And suddenly they'll meet somebody in their workplace who's a believer. And they'll start sharing. And maybe they'll listen to them quicker than they'll listen to you. But have you ever talked to them? Because if you haven't talked to them, you can't expect to pray for somebody else to talk to them. So it's awful hard. Been there, done that. What have you got to lose? Hmm? Maybe they will listen. Maybe you will lead them to Christ. Maybe you'll be the one to lead them to the Lord. And so I led my father to the Lord when he was 75 years old. In his wee pincer's bungalow, we got on our knees. Him and myself and my mother. Do you know what? I remember that moment to this day. It was precious. And you could be the one who could lead your mom or dad, mother, father, wife or husband. Who knows? Or you're maybe doing the subtle stuff, you know, maybe you're leaving the wee book somewhere where they can just see it. You're not selling, but you're just leaving it there in the hope that they'll see it when you're not about and have a wee sneaky read at it. But you find a way. You find a way to share. Or there may be a special meeting on and you'd say, well, look, will you come? Sally used to do this with me. I told you this before. Used to promise her faithfully. Every Sunday night, I'll go tonight. Come Sunday night, I didn't go. I lied. Now, I know you believe I couldn't lie, but there you did. But I wasn't saved. There's an excuse for me. And she would go out and she'd slam the door. And then she'd come back in and she was in good form. And I thought, oh, she's in good form. 
It must have been a good meeting tonight. <laughs> and that would happen, I don't know how long, for a long, long time. But then one night I did go. And I did get saved. I never looked back. Because she kept praying for me. And she kept inviting. And she did everything she could. Plus my family did too. So what are we going to do about our loved ones? Are they on your prayer list? Are you praying for them? Genuinely, truly, really praying for them? Have you witnessed to them? Have you talked to them? Have you taken them aside? You know, the night I led my dad to the Lord, he had been preached to for years. My eldest sister was his favorite. No question about that. She was the favorite. She got off a murder, and we didn't. And she used to sit and talk to him to tears ran down his face, and he still never got saved. And that night I was in his home. I was going to America for several weeks. And that night I went to his home because he wasn't well physically. I says, Dad, you're not well physically. I'm concerned about that. But I'm more concerned about your soul. You're not saved. And you know how to get saved. My mother's sitting behind us. My father was deaf. She says, tell him again. <laughs> so I told him again. <laughs> I told him again. I says, Dad, do you want to get saved tonight? And I tell you the truth, I wasn't really expecting it. The reply says, yes. And I nearly fell out of the chair when he said that because he'd been asked that so many times. He says, yes. And that was the night. Two years later, I buried him. And that two years, he read the Bible through from cover to cover. Because he was deaf, he was a great reader. And that was the night. After all those years and years and years... He finally came through. And that could happen to you too. And it could take years for some of your family members to come through. But you can pray and pray and pray. It may be the last breath in your body, but it can come through. Because God is gracious. Amen? Amen. So we're going to stand together and we're going to pray. We're going to ask the Lord by His Spirit to touch the lives of our loved ones. Maybe in our immediate family, maybe they're all saved, wonderful, but it could be our extended family. I buried a cousin just two weeks ago, a letter to the Lord two years ago. Her and her husband both So you just never know. People, they need to know that they're lost. If they don't know they're lost, they'll have no desire to be found. If they do know they're lost, then we can share with them the goodness of God, the riches of God, the blessing of the Lord. But if they don't really know they're lost, we need to show them that first. Lord, we come before you tonight Every single one of us has got an unsaved loved one. And Lord, you know their hearts. You know where they are tonight. You know the state they're in. You know their position before you better than we know. And it could be that some of them tonight are actually thinking about salvation, thinking about eternal things, although they're not showing it to us. Lord, would you quicken their hearts. Lord, would you speak to their souls tonight about eternal things? 
would they realize, Lord, in this life it can be over so quickly, in a moment, it can be an eternity. Lord, we want them to come to Christ. We want them to be saved and born again of your Spirit. Lord Jesus, this is why you went to the cross to die for our loved ones. Lord, in your mercy, would you reach out and would you touch them? Lord, they may seem hard as nails tonight, but Lord, break their hard hearts down. Melt their hard hearts. And by your Holy Spirit, convict them and draw them to yourself. Lord, there's someone here tonight with unsaved children, Lord. Young people. Some, Lord, with backslidden children tonight. And they have drifted and gone cold and wandered. And Lord, they've been shared with so many times. But Lord, would you bring somebody to their side at work or at, at university or at school or somewhere, Lord. Draw some believer to their side, Lord, to witness and to share with them the goodness of God. Lord, we want to see our families one to Christ. We want every single member to come to faith in Jesus. And we're going to trust and believe here for household salvation in the name of Jesus. One by one by one by one, Lord. We want to see them coming into the kingdom. No matter how hard they may seem, Lord. Lord, melt them and draw them by your Holy Spirit. So we lift them up before your throne of grace tonight. And we ask, Lord, that you would work in their hearts miraculously, Lord. Cause divine appointments in their lives, Lord. Send somebody across their path. But however you do it, Lord, we don't care. But Lord, just do it. Bring them to yourself by your Spirit. And Lord, we rejoice that a lost sheep has been found. That a prodigal has returned. We thank you for this. So Lord, tonight, by your Spirit, we commit them to you. Touch their hearts afresh. Show them eternity and make it real to them, Lord. In the precious and in the wonderful name of Jesus. And we'll give you the honor and we'll give you the glory. And we'll rejoice in bringing our sheaves with us. In Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Thank you for taking the time to listen to this message. For more messages like this one, visit us online at www.mpc.org.uk. You will also find a selection of informative videos at youtube.com forward slash Moira Pentecostal.